The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning, and he is risen. He's risen indeed. It's good to be with you this Easter Sunday. If you have your Bible, please open it to Jeremiah chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there's plenty of Bibles next to you on the seats or somewhere near you. Grab that. That's our gift to you to keep. Jeremiah is going to be somewhere near the center of that Bible. If you crack it in the middle, you'll be somewhere in the Psalms and Proverbs. Just move a few books to the right and you'll land there in Jeremiah. We've been in Jeremiah for a few months now. We took a month off to study some biblical theology in the book of Genesis, but we've returned last week to the book of Jeremiah in chapter 6. And this, this week will be in chapter 7 and the first part of chapter 8 of Jeremiah. If you've been following along, you know that Jeremiah is about sin and judgment. It's about the impending destruction of Jerusalem and God's anger and wrath against sin. And today is supposed to be about hope. It's supposed to be about joy. It's supposed to be about the resurrection. And so you may be wondering what the two have to do with one another. But fear not, friends. The Bible being God's word is a unified book, though written over a span of many thousands of years, even books whose themes have to do with judgment can teach us about hope. And so this morning we will spend time contemplating the resurrection of Jesus. So let's actually just begin by reading the first part of Jeremiah, the first 15 verses of, verse, of chapter 7, and we'll get to the others as we go along. So Jeremiah chapter 7 Verses 1 through 15, we'll read. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, but only to go on doing all of these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all of these things, declares the Lord, 
When I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all of your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask for your time your help this morning as we look to your word and the often repeated theme of judgment, of sin, of the need for repentance. But God, we pray that this morning we would also see the promises of hope and restoration as we look and focus our eyes and our minds' attention and our hearts' affection on Jesus who has risen from the dead by your power according to the scriptures and your promise. We pray for hearts and minds to be engaged with your word. We pray, Lord, for the children in this room to be able to hear in some small way a seed of the gospel which could be sown into their hearts. For the unbelievers here in this room who perhaps for the first time or the tenth or hundredth time are hearing the truth of your word, that for the very first time believe it and hear it savingly. We pray for the believers in this room who cherish these truths, that they would be deepened and encouraged in their faith, that they serve a risen and living Lord who is now seated at your right hand. We ask God for your help, for your grace, and for your spirit to illuminate our eyes, mind, and heart for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Jeremiah 7 begins a new section in the book of Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah is an anthology of sorts. Jeremiah is preaching, and his ministry is to the southern tribe of Judah. The northern tribes, the northern ten tribes of Israel, have already been, for about a hundred years already, under Assyrian captivity because of their sin and idolatry. God has allowed their sin to come upon their heads, and the Assyrian government has overtaken them. And only Judah, the southern tribe, remained in the south. And yet they were following in the footsteps of the northern ten tribes, and Jeremiah is a prophet raised up by God, set apart to deliver the message of repentance to this Judah who's in Jerusalem that they might avoid the same outcast and the same uh, oppression and the same captivity that the northern tribes experienced at the hand of God's judgment through the Assyrians. We know in due course that they would not heed this warning, that they would not repent, And the Babylons, the Babylonians would rise up and become a greater force even than the Assyrians and take over, eventually bringing judgment and captivity to all of God's people. So God tells Jeremiah to go to the temple, which is there in Jerusalem, and to stand in the gates, probably there in the outer and inner courtyard where all of the worshipers would come in, these these Jewish worshipers would come in to worship God and to make sacrifices and declare to them that if they repented and turned from their ways, God would not visit such calamity upon them as he has been preaching, but indeed would relent even if for a time they would return again to the Lord and his ways. See that in the first several verses here of chapter 7. So this is a sermon that Jeremiah was to preach to the worshipers there in the temple to declare to them that they are not safe even in the house of God 
Because though they offer sacrifices and they perform the rituals, God would not be pleased because their hearts were far from him. This is the problem Judah has. This is the backdrop of Jeremiah's sermon. It's the temple of God. God created this temple so that he would be worshipped by his people according to his law and his word. The temple existed as a gathering place for God's people to express their dependence and devotion to God through the offering of sacrifices and their devotion to him. To atone for sins where the priests would go and intercede on behalf of the people of the land. This was a special and religious center for God's people. God was said to dwell in the midst of his people there in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant itself was housed, where only one person, one time a year, was permitted to come and enter into the presence of the Lord. This was the pride and the glory of God's people. This proved that God's covenant with them would stand forever, that they were blessed and they would prosper, that God was their God and he was their, his people, and nothing could ever befall them because God would always protect them. With this trust turned into a naivety. And they allowed their sin and their transgressions to build up and harden their heart so that they could say with their mouths that God was their God and he was, they were his people. But their hearts would not worship him. Their hearts did not depend or trust. They offered sacrifices outwardly. We would not live a life devoted to his word. They cared little for the things of God except when it only profited them. And in fact, they gave themselves out to all the worship of other gods and idols like the nations around them. They were following in the footsteps of Israel. Well, if this is the backdrop of the sermon here, the temple where Jeremiah stands warning and pleading and preaching to Judah, we must ask ourselves then what this has to do this morning with the resurrection. Well, the two are linked by one word, authority. Authority. See, authority was the central issue in the temple. It was the place where God's authority over the hearts and minds and lives of its worshipers were to be put on display. To come and worship a sovereign God who created the heavens and the earth, who gave them grace and mercy upon mercy, and who would provide for them so long as they devoted themselves and trusted him for all things. It was the authority and the sovereignty of God which was expressed in the worship in the temple. That was the very central issue there. But it's also the central issue of the resurrection because it is the authority of God on display when Jesus is risen from the dead. The very last words to the disciples in Matthew 28, Jesus says that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This is the risen Lord who says it. The authority is granted to Christ because he is the true king who has ransomed his people and is put on display in the power of his resurrection from the dead. So what has the temple there in Jerusalem have to do with the resurrection of Jesus? It is all about God's authority. So here's the main idea this morning. Because God's ultimate power and authority is displayed in Christ's resurrection, we must worship 
him on the basis of his resurrection. We'll explain that as we go. Because God's ultimate power and authority is displayed in the resurrection of Jesus, we must worship him on the basis of that resurrection. It is the foundation of our faith upon which all of our hope, all of our dependence, all of our doctrine, all of our belief is rooted in and built upon. It is the resurrection of Jesus which displays God's ultimate power and authority. And so we're going to journey from the temple of the 7th century B.C. to the resurrection of Jesus in the 1st century B.C. or A.D. And we're going to do so through a series of seven clauses or statements of fact, each which connect and build on the other. And we'll make some passing comments and application along the way. For the sake of time, I want to move briskly. So you'll be helped if you have your Bible open and remained open. We'll spend three points here in Jeremiah, then to Mark chapter 11, and end back in Jeremiah again. The first statement or clause which leads us to the resurrection from the temple of the 7th century is that God's temple is a place of holiness and worship. This concerns the nature of God's temple. It answers the question why we worship God in the first place. God instituted a worshipful religion. He could have had it where any individual can worship God as he pleased, wherever he'd like, in spirit and in truth. But in the Old Covenant, it was to be worshipped by particular rules and rituals at a particular place. True, God certainly could be worshipped at any place, at any time, by anyone who acknowledged his lordship, but it was the temple there in the center of Zion, God's city, Jerusalem, where he chose to dwell. We see that it was a place, a house, called by his name. There was a central and physical location, which was, in a very real sense, the center of God's kingdom on earth. And so worshippers would come to the temple to worship because God was God. His authority was evident in their lives. It was an expression of their dependence upon God and his authority over their lives to do with them as he pleased. His word and his promises were good. His law was righteous. They owed everything to him. He was worthy of their worship. He created them just as he's created you and I. He gave them life just as he has given you and I life. He has provided them with all things that they've needed to sustain that life. Sustenance, breath, community. And so we give worship to God. We declare his authority over our lives as the creator over the creature and of all creation. The temple, simply put, was a place to meet with God and worship him. Now, worship acknowledges the sovereign lordship of God over man's heart and life. That's what worship does. No matter how you do worship, in the Old or the New Covenant, worship, however it looks and whatever form it takes, if it is according to God's word, it is the acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God and his lordship over man's heart and life. When you come to foundation this morning and we worship, 
we are acknowledging the lordship of God over our hearts and life. And so what was ritualized in the temple through worship, offering of sacrifices, the making of sacrifices and offerings, what was ritualized in Israel's temple worship served to confirm and reinforce the covenant reality of God's people. Namely, that they were to live for God in all ways. It enforces and confirms for them the reality of God's moral and ethical authority over every aspect of one's life. Or to put it another way, God expected complete devotion, affection, and obedience to his covenant law because he was their God and they were supposed to be his people. And all the rituals and the sacrifices of the temple were meant to be the tangible expression of that dependence and of that devotion. Does that make sense? This was the, the outworking and the expression of God's people's dependence and affection and devotion to a God who had covenanted with them. So what happened in the temple was meant to be a sign of God's authority over all of their life. But what happens when the outward act of ritual and sacrifice becomes empty of its meaning? When those things no longer reflect what is true inside, inside the heart of the person who has come to worship? Would their sacrifices still count? Would their rituals still matter? The answer is no. This was Judah's problem. So not only is God's temple a place of holiness and worship, but we see secondly that Judah's sin defiles the temple and defiles their worship. Judah defiles the temple by their sin in their hypocrisy. In verses 8 through 11, we see the transgressions of Judah which mount up against them. As they come to worship God, they still come to do all of the outward sacrifices and rituals, and yet their heart and their lives are completely in rebellion against God. They came not to worship God in devotion and in truth and allegiance and affection to God, but simply to perform a ritual so that they can still claim God's protection while they perform idolatry in their hearts and lives. We see very clearly that it's the sin and the hypocrisy of Judah that gets them here in trouble. The many transgressions of Judah against her God closely then resembles the sins that are guarded against in the Ten Commandments. Just look there in verses 5 and 6 and verse 9. It says, If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, you execute justice one another. If you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then you will let them dwell in the land. Or again in verse 9, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, and make offerings to other gods like Baal, and go after these other gods that you have not known? These are the exact sins which those Ten Commandments are given to, God, given to Israel so that would guard them from the covenant-breaking work. That sin so tempts us to do. So we see clearly then here with verses 5 and 6 that Judah's actions, their particular sins and rebellion against God violates and it breaches the covenant 
that God made with them at Mount Sinai. A covenant is, if you remember, it's a promised pact that God makes with his chosen people. And this pact had certain conditions and stipulations complete with promises of blessing and warnings of curses if those conditions are not met. This covenant is entered into with God's people by God. And these sins violated the covenant. They breached the terms of the agreement that God made with his people there in Mount Sinai. They lost sight of who God really was to them and what he truly desired. Just look a little further in verses 21 through 24 and see how Judah describes what has really happened to them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers nor command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. Walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. When God entered into covenant with his people through Moses and the law, this was what he truly desired. Even the commands he gave were to point them to walk with him. Not in outward ritual, but in inward devotion and affection with him. That they would be his people and he would be their God. But this is the very sin which Judah and Israel committed. They walked according to their own counsels. They abandoned the well-worn paths of God's word. The main source of their sin, of course, was that their trust was in a lie. Their allegiance-backed affection was in something false. That's what it says there in verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. That's what the main source of their sin was. Or later in verses 17 and 18, it says that you do not see what they are doing. Or do you not see what they're doing in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? Their children gather wood, the father kindles the fire, and the women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. This was some false goddess that they worshipped in the other nations. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Their trust was in other gods. Their allegiance and their affection was not in the true God. But it was in a lie. And so we see from this comes the fruit of the poisonous tree. That that which was poisoned, namely their worship and allegiance to false god, led to the other sins in their life. The covetousness, the oppression of others, the disregard for the law of God, their willingness to overlook the widow, to shed innocent blood, to seek their own comfort and wealth and prosperity at the expense of others. It was the fruit of the poisonous tree. So friends, let us then be careful that the false beliefs that you and I may hold, and certainly we do, be careful that false beliefs that are built on a weak foundation do not collapse in on you and cause ruin. We must examine whether the root of our trees which bear fruit in our lives are rooted in the foundation of God's word or in falsehood that we have told ourselves are true to our own comfort but ultimately our own ruin.
Well, the main source of their sin was that their trust was in a lie, but the chief issue that God takes with them, however, was not simply their idolatry. It says that they followed after gods like Baal, but it was their hypocrisy. Look at verse 10. It says that they come, they do all these things, and they still come to the temple, and they stand before me in this house which is called by my name. It just underscores the reason why they should be coming, but they are not. And they say, we are delivered only to go on performing and doing all of these abominations. So in other words, it is not sin which defiles our worship, but it is unrepentant sin. It is not sin, per se, which defiles our worship, but it is unrepentant sin. If sin defiled our worship, then, brothers and sisters, you and I could not worship God in spirit and truth here. For all of us are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. And yet, thanks be to God that He welcomes sinners, even in their sin, to worship Him. This is not to say that we can sin, and grace would abound, and there's no need to ever restore or correct our lives, but rather it is the unrepentant sin here which is the object of God's wrath and anger. That would defile our worship. It is the hypocrisy of coming to God's house, worshiping God with our singing and our praising and our giving and all the things that we do, the ins and outs of our liturgy here at Foundation or anywhere else, and yet day by day our lives are lived in complete rebellion against Him. It is that kind of unrepentant hypocrisy which defiles your worship here. Not the fact that you're a sinner. This was the chief issue. And so what was to be a place of worship and covenant communion with God, He with His people and His people with their God was now a gathering place, a hideout for thieves and robbers. There in verse 11 who have the audacity to obey God through these outward rituals and sacrifices without the least bit of remorse for their sins or any intention to change their ways. Leads us to our third point here in Jeremiah. God will take away their access then by destroying the temple and subject them to captivity. God will take away their access by destroying the temple and subject them to captivity. That's what he says in verses 12 through 15. He warns them over and over again. Go and remember what I did to Shiloh, where the tabernacle once dwelled. The Ark of the Covenant was there. And because of Israel's sin, the Philistines came and overtook them and even stole the Ark of the Covenant and took it back to their place. Now, indeed, God would restore Israel and would return the Ark of the Covenant back into the sanctuary. But here he reminds them that God will judge wickedness. He will remove His glory and His presence from among them. He will even destroy the very house where He is said to dwell. And so like a house whose beams and supports have been consumed by termites and weakened by rot and decay, the only way to deal with such an issue is to condemn its use, to shutter it, to ultimately to tear it down. Look in verse 19 and 20. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field, upon the fruit of the ground. 
it will burn and not be quenched. This is a sobering reminder and warning of God's sovereign authority. Or as Job would put it, the God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is the sovereign prerogative of God that he has not guaranteed his presence among his people despite their sin. But it is a grace that he dwells among his people and their sin has driven him to wrath and anger. It is provoked and so fury and destruction must follow. He who once established a temple-like sanctuary in Silo, he says, and had it destroyed by the Philistines would do so again to Judah and Jerusalem. And so in addition to tearing down the temple because it was a false place of refuge for unrepentant covenant breakers who thought they were safe because they performed outward sacrifices and rituals, God here doubles down and he even declares that that he will cast them out of his sight. That is, he will allow them to be overtaken by the armies of the north and the temple itself would be destroyed. Fourth statement is that Jesus has come both to fulfill and replace what the temple represents. Jesus fulfills and replaces what the temple represents. Turn with me to Mark chapter 11. The context of Mark chapter 11, you can see from the headings in your Bible, is that Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem in what was called the triumphal entry, riding on a donkey, welcomed as the king the Savior, Hosanna in the highest. Many were expectant that this king would overthrow the forces of the Roman government and establish the rule and reign of the great kingdom of Israel again, only to be sorely mistaken and disappointed. And those very same who cry out, David, Hosanna in the highest, will be those who cry out to crucify him in just a few short days. But look in verse 15 through 19 of chapter 11. It says that they came to Jerusalem, and he entered, that is Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Sound familiar? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And so when evening came, they went out of the city. So the triumphal entry here and the cleansing of the temple, both are there to assert the authority of Jesus as God's representative on earth. These assert the authority of Jesus because here is the promised king who is devoted to God and worships him faithfully. He is the righteous one who has righteous anger in the temple at the way that those who are worshiping in the temple and who are charged to oversee the worship of the temple. Now, of course, in its second iteration, because the temple in Jeremiah had been destroyed and was rebuilt a second time, 
This has become more of a place of commerce and commercialism than prayer and worship. And so Jesus draws directly on the outrage of Jeremiah, even on the outrage of God himself, at the same wicked behavior that we saw in Judah's day. So Jesus' prescient warning then is this. Later in Mark chapter 14, it says, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. So God's plan for the wickedness and idolatry of Jerusalem in Jesus' day is the same as it was in Jeremiah's day, to destroy the temple, to rule in his authority by judgment on those who defiles it. Only this time it will be Jesus who steps in for the covenant breakers rather than the covenant breakers themselves who receive God's punishment. Jesus says that I will destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. And though the second temple would be indeed later destroyed in A.D. 70, Jesus there wasn't referring to the actual structure when he said that it would be destroyed and rebuilt. He was, of course, referring to himself. Well, how can this be? It is Jesus making a statement, of course, which was completely misunderstood by everyone who heard it at first. He's making a statement that places him at the center of the worship of God, just as the temple was previously. It places him at the center of the worship of God, not a building. He would become, in effect, the new temple of God. He would become the place where God's people would come to worship God, the means by which we would draw near to God in worship. Essentially, what he declares is that it is time for the old and inefficient way of offering sacrifices, of doing things to end. It will never solve the covenant-breaking problem. He says, in effect, we need a new temple. We need a different temple, one that can never be defiled, one whose worshipers are kept in their faithfulness to God and to his faithfulness to God's authority. But before this new temple could ever be built, he says it first must be destroyed. This is our fifth statement, that Jesus destroys the temple by becoming a victim of the very injustice and absorbing God's wrath upon it. Jesus destroys the temple by becoming a victim of the very injustice that was rampant among it and absorbs God's destructive wrath against it. You see, God's answer to the injustice and the oppression, to the idolatry, to the covenant unfaithfulness, was to become a victim of it. This is completely unique. What we see in Jeremiah's word is that God would rain justice and wrath against the temple to destroy it. But here, Jesus has come not to destroy the temple with wrath, but to become a victim of the injustice that ran rampant in the temple, in the hearts and the lives of those who were called to worship God, but rebelled against Him. Peter declares later in Acts 15, having been enlightened by the Spirit to know exactly what Jesus means, he says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, wicked men, there in Acts 2.23. So on the cross, Jesus goes. The wrath of God against sin 
And the penalty for all the covenant unfaithfulness and all the violations of the law, all the oppression, all the injustice, all the shedding of innocent blood, all of God's wrath against those things kindled against God's people is poured out there on Christ. We read a similar passage this morning, but it's worth reading again from Mark 15, verse 33, 39. As Jesus hung on the cross, and after he suffered for some time, it says that when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemethabachthani, which means, my God, my God, where I have, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come down to take him. But Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Notice the connection of the temple here in verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That was what separated the inner sanctuary where God dwelled with the rest of the courtyard. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, This man was the Son of God. So the wrath against sin, God's righteous, just anger against unrighteousness, does indeed, like Jeremiah, destroy the temple. But it was Jesus who was the recipient of God's destructive wrath, not God's people. He was the one cast out, not God's people. But remember Jesus' promise that not only would the temple be destroyed, but it would be raised again on the third day. Sixth statement, Jesus rebuilds the temple by rising from the dead. Here's where we get to the really important part of the story. Death and destruction were poured out on Jesus while he hung on the cross. The old structures of daily sacrifices and conditioned-based blessings of the old covenant, they were being violently torn down. There was a wrecking ball of God's wrath into the side of the temple and its demands as if it pierced the very side of Jesus. But God's authority was not destroyed by all this. It is, in fact, made all the more visible and clear through Christ's death. The authority of God is on full display as the power of God raises Christ from the dead three days later. He is the new temple of God. Consider the Apostle John in John 10, 17. It says, as Jesus, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Do you see now that the authority which is to to condition the worship of God's people in the temple is now that same authority of God which is to be seen and displayed to the resurrection of Jesus. He had the authority to lay down his life by which that old temple destroyed. And he, in God's authority, raises it up again, establishing a new and imperishable authority and temple. He has come with God's authority and he has laid down his life in order to establish a new and a better covenant with a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, he would draw all men to himself just as the old temple drew its own worshipers. The power then, the power in the resurrection means that this new temple, 
built on the foundation of Christ's perfect obedience and his substitutionary death. It can never be destroyed. It can never be defiled. All the worshipers who come to offer praise in its sanctuary, they are made holy just by coming. And that is the gift of the resurrection. That's the blessing of the new covenant in Christ. Jesus rebuilds the temple. The wrath of God poured out on Christ, which destroys the old way, is the wrath against our covenant unfaithfulness so that Christ and his faithfulness would count for us. This is the last exhortation, Clause 7. All who are with Christ are blessed, and all who are not are cursed. See, all that is left then for you and I to do is to decide whether or not Christ is worthy of such praise, if indeed all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That is the standard and central question of our faith. Does Christ possess all authority? And is he worthy then of such praise? If we decide not, then the outcome of Judah is certain. You can turn back to chapter 7 and just look at the last several verses there in verse 30 of Jeremiah. The sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. Fire, yes, child sacrifice. I did not command it, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topeth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. The dead bodies of his people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. And the voice, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for all the land shall become a waste. And at that time declares the Lord, the bones of the king of Judah and the bones of its official, the bones of its priests, the bones of the prophets, the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be brought out of their tombs. They shall be spread before the sun and the moon, the host of heaven which they have loved and served, and which they have gone after, and which they have sought and worshipped. And they shall not be gathered or buried, but they shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. And death shall be preferred to life by all the remnants that remains of this evil family in all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. That's the inevitable outcome. That's the wrath of God, a picture of God's wrath on those who decide upon looking at the cross and considering the resurrection that Christ has no such authority, that he has not risen from the dead, that he offers no hope, that it must depend fully on ourselves to earn our salvation, or worse, that there is no salvation to be found, for there is no God to be worshipped. If we decide that Jesus is not authoritative, Son of God, risen from the dead, then death would be more preferable to life. But if we decide that Jesus truly is the risen king, then it is new life, which is certain. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 4 says that, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? The substitutionary, atoning death of Jesus. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
And so this new life means that even though you are a covenant breaker like Judah, or a murderer even like Paul, or an adulterer like King David, the temple of Jesus Christ is indeed a safe place of refuge for you, unlike it is for those who rob and kill and destroy and rebellion against God. Since it is not like that old temple, which could be defiled, Christ welcomes us to himself, not to offer sacrifices out of ritual or feigned obedience, but to worship Christ who offered himself as a sacrifice once and for all, and he purifies and cleanses those who are joined to him in worship by faith. And so two exhortations to the non-Christian. First, believe and confess this truth. Know that God stands before you, begging you to heed this warning. You are here because God wants you to know that his judgment is true, that his word is to be believed. The promise, of course, of the New Testament is that all those who believe in their heart that Jesus is risen from the dead and call out on the name of the Lord shall be saved, that he is the Son of God. Believe and confess your sins and avoid such a tragic and eternal end of destruction. But to the Christian, the exhortation is to walk in your newness, which is yours in Christ who is risen from the dead. You have now the Spirit of Christ which dwells within you, just as it has in its temple before. And it empowers you. He empowers you to be faithful where you once were not faithful. And so, friends, let the resurrection speak to you this morning a word of assurance that Christ's sacrifice fully satisfied God's wrath for your sin and that death and destruction have been defeated. May your life, as Peter puts it, as living stones in this temple of God. May your life give clarity and proof of God's authority over your life so that others may come and know and belong to God by faith. That is what the resurrection of Christ means for us this morning. That he who has risen from the dead has all authority in heaven and earth. We are to go and worship, not outwardly through ritual and sacrifice, but with a heart of affection and devotion to Christ who is our sacrifice, who has fully accepted and pleased God's wrath, who has risen from the dead, sealing our hope and our assurance for salvation. If you hope and trust in that and you walk in the newness of life that it secures for you, then the promised blessing is eternal life with Christ. Do you pray with me? Father, there is much more to say and think, but God, we commend to you our souls that you would so teach us and instruct us in the way of walking in this newness of life as Christians who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, who have confessed with our mouths that he has risen from the dead. God, we trust that that power which raised him from the dead is at work even in us through the Spirit to believe and to obey. We pray, God, for those who have not believed as such and who therefore cannot obey as such that you would stir in their heart an affection for you, even a movement of a question that would consider their doubts, that would have suspicion upon their own ability to earn or keep themselves in your grace, or even a subtle hint that you are real and warning them today. We ask, God, that you would so teach us. We love you, God, we pray, as always, in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's All sermons stand together. are released you under grab a Creative Commons, worship, uh, your, your songbook, no derivative, open three to Song license. 22. If you would like to learn more Sorry, or listen to past sermons, is he please worthy? visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? Lion of Judah, he conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? Does the Father truly love us? Does the Spirit move among us? And does Jesus our Messiah hold forever those he loves? Does our God intend to dwell again with us? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave from every people and tribe. Every nation and tongue, he has made us a kingdom of priests to God to reign with the Son. Is he worthy?